Hashtag never alone with Joe and Mark. Hi everyone and welcome to Hashtag Never Alone Season 2 Episode 8. I'm your lived experience host Joe Ambridge. And I'm Joe's co-host and psychotherapist and relationship counsellor Mark Fielding. Um, and today's topic is women and mental health. Um, so this is from Beyond Blue. Um, women experience some mental health conditions that are higher rates than men. In fact, around one in six women in Australia will experience depression and one in three women will experience anxiety during their lifetime. Um, Mark? Yeah, women also experience post-traumatic stress disorder uh, and eating disorders at higher rates than men. Um, yeah, I'm just kind of wanting to include their, you know, maybe miscarriage and um, I've done a traumatic birth. I mean, that's something I think that's not really spoken about that much, but a lot of women have that experience. Uh, depression and anxiety can affect women at any time in their life, but there is an increased chance during pregnancy and the year following the birth of a baby. Up to one in 10 women experience depression while they're pregnant, and one in six women experience depression during the first year after birth. Um, anxiety conditions are thought to be as common with many women experiencing both conditions at the same time. Yeah, um, we're going to cover some of the topics we've covered previously before, um, because we're joined by two guests today. Um, we co- covered already, we covered um, postnatal depression, which was a really popular episode um, and nearly reached 200 views. That was with Sandy Givens, I think her name was. Um, I'd like to introduce uh, our first guest now. So I'll just introduce um, Dr. Joe Lukins. Is it Lukins or Lukins? Lukens, that's correct. You've got okay, that right. Thank you for joining us, Joe. Um, can you just give a little insight into your background in regards to mental health and your professional background? Sure. So my professional background, and first of all, thank you for the invitation to be here with you for for this very important discussion. Um, so my background is in psychology. It's actually my 30-year anniversary of being in psychology. So <laughs> I guess that dates me, dates me a little bit. Um, I've, I've been in the profession for a really long time. So um, I, I came through my study in Australia uh, towards the end of the 80s, the early 90s. And um, that, was, that was good timing for me because the profession was starting to see a bit of a shift and a change. So my main area of expertise has been centred in an area of psychology referred to as positive psychology. What positive psychology is is essentially, in in its in its essence, it's the science of what goes well. So around about the time I was coming through in my studies, the questions were being asked of our profession about you know what happens if we study what's right with people. That psychology had spent many many important years engaging in some of those challenges that people experience through their lives, and we hadn't really got the whole picture. So. I guess the, the, the framework and the perspective that I've come from in my career has been from, from the discipline of positive psychology, which really tries to look at, in addition to what happens when people are experiencing challenges, what are some of the protective factors that help people to travel through life and then to, I guess, um, uh, to be more resilient, to look after themselves and, and, and that whole wellbeing space. So my career has been spent very much in that field. Um, I need to be clear from the outset. So I've worked in the profession for 30 and was a registered psychologist for 28 of those years. So I'm not actually a registered psychologist um, today. So I, I actually stopped that uh, two years ago just in relation to uh, a, a particular area that my work went into. So I, I 
I spent many, many years doing individual one-on-one -on -one counselling with people through part of my work. So a lot of my work's been conducted in the sports psychology space and, and with, with athletes. So I, I currently work within the Women's National Basketball League and I've worked with two teams through, through, um, through that league and also with the Women's uh, Rugby League program, so with the, the Queensland Women's State of Origin team. So I guess I've worked in that elite sports space with female athletes. I, I mentor uh, professional women, um, so I guess working lots of different, and I do a lot of work obviously in army and because um, I'm based in North Queensland, so we have a large army base here near us. Um, so I guess I work with a really diverse group of people um, and many of the, the people that I encounter in my work are women. So I think I just turned that into a very long answer, but um, that's essentially where, where my work and journey has travelled over the last three decades. And and at various times through my career, you know, I, I probably spent about 10, 10 years, I think, probably working in the area assisting women who had challenges around eating um, and particularly around bulimia nervosa and anorexia nervosa. Done a lot of work in the areas of obesity. So lots of different areas that obviously these experiences affect all people at, at different levels and, and particularly have had a focus and a, a, a desire to work with women and, and to assist them through their journey. Yeah, I mean, I, just to pick up on the positive psychology kind of aspect, yeah, I'm a big fan of positive psychology, use it a lot in my own practice as well. I'm just wanting to maybe just unpack a little bit what drew you into that area. You've, you've kind of explained a little bit, but just maybe yeah. just to hear a little bit more and perhaps the application of it with, with some, of the, sure. some of the groups. Yeah, ha happy to, Mark. So I guess um, partly it was good timing. Um, I think for me professionally, it was, in a, it was at a time when there was a lot of curiosity around positive psychology so that I think there was a professor at the time his name was Donald Clift and he asked the question of the profession about you know what would happen if we studied what's right with people and so I guess what what psychology had traditionally done is taken when I don't know see if I can get my hands into the shop but you know when people are are experiencing challenges and want to get themselves back to a place where they are functioning more effectively and functioning better and where psychology um, looked through the lens of at that time towards the mid to late 80s was we really hadn't spent a lot of time and we really didn't understand a lot about some of those other elements within life. So things such as um, love, leadership, kindness, gratitude, you know, all those kinds of areas. What does success look like? And because I had a particular interest and focus within sports psychology, um, and I've done quite a lot of work in the organisational psychology settings, it really lent itself really well um, to help people. And what I've found is I, I can always remember I, I, I work in a couple of schools as a positive education mentor, which means I assist those schools with their framework to help wellbeing programs within schools and a pastoral care system, if you like, in some schools. And I always remember a, a principal saying to me, you know, Joe is positive psychology just for those who are well? And, and it was such a great question because it made me realise that, that, of course, that would be a way that you might think about it. But what I actually find is the application of positive psychology can really help many, many people in many different ways. And it, it's, it's just another tool that we have in our belts within the discipline of, of psychology and, and assisting people that can be really helpful. So... Um, you know, I might find myself on any given day, you know, if I think about some of the work that I've done with 
elite athletes and, and some of those female athletes, I might be helping them with some of the things you might traditionally expect from sports psychology, you know, goal setting and anxiety management around performance and those sorts of things. Um, lately, there's I've, I've been uncovering lots of discussion around imposter thinking, you know, people tending to think, you know, um, here I am, this capable athlete, and deep down inside, I'm actually questioning who I am and if I'm capable, what everyone thinks of me. And so I think, you know, those kind of messages resonate for lots of people. You know, I might see it in sports settings, but often I guess probably where my work has shifted to in the last few years is trying to translate some of the lessons of elite performance for anybody because, you know, success leaves clues. And so if we understand a little bit about what it looks like when people are doing well and we pay attention to that and we put some of those mechanisms in our own lives then it then it usually will be beneficial for us yeah i mean um, I, I, I totally agree with you yeah i mean yeah, because i guess you know the psychology is you know like just as you say you know historically focused on pathology and that's you know that's right and that's good and that's important but you know but it, it's only really fairly recently that it started to turn the eye on what makes people happy, what makes people successful, what makes people resilient, you know, and that's so, so important. You know, I mean, personally using it with people that perhaps are coming out of a depressive phase, you know, and introducing some of these things like gratitude diary, you know, it's such a small thing, isn't it? But, you know, it's such a big thing for, you know, in terms of, you know, mental health and a lot of research behind it, I think can help people and people put these kind of, some of these scaffolding in, in order to kind of scaffold their mental health going forward, I think it can be tremendously helpful. I mean, it's just as you say, and and I'm kind of warning, I'm segueing a bit, but I'm, I'm wanting to ask you a little bit around challenges that perhaps you know elite female athletes have um, that perhaps elite male athletes don't have. I'm just wanting to make the distinction really, and just perhaps you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so so uh, thank you for that question. So there's obviously a lot of common ground, but then there's also things that we see for the elite female performer. So there'll be there'll obviously be some things around physiology that that um, we're sometimes dealing with for athletes. So for example, an athlete who's just recently had a child, or and the athlete who is going through menopause. You know, depending on where you know the elite masters athlete versus a younger athlete. So we might have a young gymnast. Um, who might be having um, cessation with her cycle. Um, and so that might lend itself. There may or may not be, but there may be some, some issues there around eating and so forth as well. Um, and even some of the things that I see for female athletes, particularly even at the elite level, is that um, for, for elite professional female athletes, the pay disparity is so significant that it means that the, the social and the economic circumstances for those women, you know, so, I, so I've had professional athletes who are in, on the national st uh, stage who are working jobs in sports stores and all the rest of it and trying to juggle all their training, their commitments, and maybe having to live away from their family. So the WNBL is a good example of that, the Women's National Basketball League, and they've made great steps, particularly in the last two, two to three years in, in raising base salaries and so forth for women. But it is, it is very different to, I guess, we get the contrast up here in North Queensland because we've got, in the NRL, we've got the Cowboys and, and then in the Women's National Basketball League, we've got the Fire and, and two, you know, outstanding groups of athletes, but their experiences are very different. Their opportunities are very different. And then, you know, there might be additional factors that they're, that they're facing as well. 
Yeah, um, and when we were chatting about organising, could you come on the episode? You mentioned that you had a, a book. Could you tell us a little bit about your book? Yeah, sure. Thank you. Um, two books, actually. Um, I, I think I've probably only told you about one of them. But so I put my first book out in 2019 and it's a book called The Elite. Um, Think like an athlete, succeed like a champion. So it's very much what I was talking about before. It's that translating some of the lessons of elite performance for anyone. So it's it's not actually a book that's meant for athletes. That being said, quite a few athletes have picked it up. But it's talking about what are some of the things that we know help people to function well and it probably won't surprise you when you hear some of the key concepts they've they've got fancy titles in the chapters but essentially the essence of what I'm talking about in there is about the importance of having effective habits in place Um, because we know that you know willpower and motivation sometimes disappears for all of us so if you have some some helpful habits in place and that's generally um, quite beneficial for us in terms of getting ourselves on the path to success um, we look at things like uh, Mark mentioned gratitude and so gratitude gratitude is an interesting one because we've, we've known for a long time about the benefits for all of us um, of gratitude on well-being. So there's no doubt that for any one of us that when we can stop and reflect on the things that we're grateful for, it's, it's really helpful for all of us. Um, what we're seeing in the sports space now is that um, there's a link between gratitude and performance. So I'm really curious about that and how that fits in. So, you know, talk, talking about social support. So in so The Elite is is the book that I've written that's, that's really trying to, um, I guess, translate those lessons. And then the second book that I wrote last year during COVID, gave me something to do while I was locked down and had no work on, um, is I wrote my second book, which is called In the Grandstands. And that's a book uh, there to support parents on the uh, the teenage sporting journey because I've, I found I was working a lot with teenage athletes, but most of the questions were coming from their parents. So it's a book designed to kind of sit with the parent in the grandstands and little um, little uh, topics and things that are of interest to parents, the questions that parents ask about performance and and helping them with that. So there's one more there's one more in the in the pipeline, but I am um, I haven't written enough of it yet to say that I've actually written it. I'm still got a bit of writing to go. Where can our listeners find these books? Uh, well, um, yeah, um, so it's it's actually got international distribution. So wherever you normally buy your books, you can probably find it. But I do actually know that at the moment, Amazon have got a little promo on it. So if you want to get it cheaply, um, and if you like an ebook, I would. if it were me, I probably should say go to my website where it's full price. But if you go to Amazon, I'm pretty sure it's on special at the moment. So you can you can get it through Amazon. You can, But I always say to people, if you can go to your independent bookstore, they can probably get a copy of it for you there as well. So it's always nice to support our local bookstores. Yeah. Do you have any other questions you'd like to ask, Mark? Yeah, I mean, I just wanted to ask a little bit around, um, we hadn't explicitly talked about kind of, you know, the pressures on, on, on women and the pressures on, you know, on female athletes, but I'm just wondering whether, I'm also wanting to talk about eating disorders and perhaps wanting to talk about both, they're, they're both kind of enormous subjects, aren't they? But mm. I just wonder whether, whether you could pick up on, 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 on anything and just tell us a little bit around, you know, perhaps eating disorders or the pressures on young female athletes and how the two perhaps associate if that makes sense yeah what what the link might be between them for those women that experience that so sure so uh, you know with many sports um your physicality makes a difference in terms of your performance if we can put it like that so you know and in many sports it depends it depends on the sport so within rugby league so I work within that space 
Um, most of those athletes need to be quite strong. Um, and so there's, there's particular demand characteristics that are put on them in terms of their physicality for them to be able to perform well. And then if you took a, a contrasting sport like, um, like ballet or gymnastics and so forth, where you might need a different, you know, your body needs to be able to do different things. So they I have often worked with athletes over the years, particularly female athletes who have received the messaging or have perceived the messaging that their weight and, and being lighter is important for them in terms of performance. And that's going to be something that's going to be helpful for them. And what can happen is sometimes on that quest um, for some of those athletes, it can take them into a, you know, a dangerous zone, which can be where you, you can have some of the eating disorder experiences and that might be, and most typically in that space, I would see bulimia nervosa or anorexia nervosa, depending on how it manifests itself. But certainly when I've had female athletes who've had those experiences, and I should say, you know, we, we know of course it's sometimes part of the male experience, but across my career, I think maybe twice, I saw it in male athletes and far more commonly in female athletes when I saw it. Um, and so there's, there's those pressures that are there um, and, and it's a very challenging circumstance for a, for a female athlete to find themselves in um, and, and more typically anorexia I would see in younger athletes and more typically I would see bulimia presenting um, in older athletes or athletes who had maybe had a young elite journey and then um, were still living with some of the challenges of, of those two conditions. I mean, there's quite a lot in the press here around kind of gymnasts, especially female gymnasts and the pressure, you know, put on them by, you know, the kind of, their kind of professional associations, their, their trainers to, you know, to be a certain weight and, you know, and that leading into, you know, bulimia and anorexia. There's quite a lot of that coming up now in, in the UK. So it's interesting yeah. really to hear you, you, you talk about it. It's something that I think has been around for many, many years, really. Yeah. Oh, oh absolutely. We've, 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 you know, I don't work in that area anymore, but I know I know it's still, as you say, very common, unfortunately. Um, we see far too much of it. And I, I think, you know, if, I, if, if there's a young woman or, or if there's any woman who's, who's watching in on this episode and, and a challenge with, with, with some of the things in this area, obviously what I, would, what I would hope is that they'd be able to go and find someone to talk to about that. And, and if ever you're not sure, I would always start with your GP. I think that's always a pretty safe place to start, but it's got to be someone you feel comfortable with. But what I would say is for anyone else who is listening, who is working with young women, who is coaching young women, um, you know, being very mindful of the words that you use and the language that you use. So you know, these conditions can come about from a whole range of reasons. But when I ask young, when I used to ask young women about it, they, they often could remember a single conversation with a, with a coach and, and some of the phrasing that gets used. Um, and sometimes it can be careless phrasing. Sometimes it can be intentional messaging. But, you know, the words we use, the language we use is so incredibly important. Um, and particularly in this area where, where we might have someone who might be vulnerable um, so, so being mindful about that. And what I would say to coaches um, and trainers and anyone who is working in that space is to, is to ask questions and, and to get information around that. We, we had a forum recently with a, a group of coaches in a particular sport and, and there was lots of questions there where very well-intentioned coaches didn't want to say something that would be unhelpful. So, you know, seek out that information wherever you can. Very helpful. 
Yeah. yeah. And, and I guess, you know, there's the, you know, the pressure on, you know, on the athletes that we're talking about, but I guess it is also, you know, a, an enormous amount of societal pressure on women to be perfect in every way, which, you know, which you also, you know, athletes or non-athletes, you know, women are having to kind of cope with every day. I mean, that's a whole nother conversation I know. And I, I wanted to just, just leave, come back to you, Joe. Yeah. I guess what you're saying a lot of it, and I think in women in general, a lot of it links back to body image this expectation of how women should look, especially athletes and celebrities. So that could probably cause quite a lot of mental health issues to people if they don't look a certain way. Yeah. Especially athletes, yeah. Yeah, yeah and I, th I think it is, you know, just from my, you know, I'm speaking as a man here, right? but, but from, you know, from what I see, you know, it, yeah, I mean, it, it is in terms of looks, but... I think women are expected to be perfect, aren't they? Perfect carers, you know, perfect mothers, you know, perfect in, in every way. And, you know, and it's an intolerable pressure, isn't it, mm -hmm. you know, that the women grow up with, really. And, and it's an impossible you know, to reach that, you know, the bar is set so high for women that it's kind of impossible, really, to ever achieve that, really. Um, yeah. Yeah. Mark, can I add one one point in there that might yeah. be really helpful for people listening? Off that, you know, it's very wise what you've just said about that pressure for perfection. And I guess I'm often working in a domain with people who are and put themselves in a success environment and are wanting to do really well. So the key messaging I always have around that is, you know, I'll, yeah, if it's a basketballer, I might say, tell me who a perfect basketballer is. Like, you know, someone on the world stage who is perfect. And people are usually, you know, clutching at straws because they can't think of someone who is perfect because even, you know, outstanding athletes have, you know, have their off moments, they miss baskets, you know, they get things wrong and so forth. So, so even that subtle change of rather than striving for perfection, strive for excellence because we can all think of excellent athletes, but I can't think of a single perfect one. Um, so... And, and I sometimes find that messaging helpful for myself is if I get myself caught in that trap of perfectionistic thinking, you know, something has to be perfect and it has to be, you know, tick every single box. Well, does it or could it be excellent? And excellence is a pretty good standard set. So I, I, I just wanted to jump in with that little pointer because I, I find that particularly helpful for myself um, as a professional person. But, but I've used that messaging and we've had discussions around that so many times with the the clients that I, I, I work with. Yeah, and just that shift in framing is just so powerful. And the mm. words we use, you know, just to repeat what you said earlier, the words we use are so important, aren't they? The words we use to talk to others, the words we use to talk to ourselves, just a tiny shift can take a lot of internal pressure off. Yeah. Yeah, something we touched on in the men and mental health episode about this whole man up thing as well. Expectations of different genders and certain words you could say to them that really could affect them more than you actually realize like telling them meant to ban up and then saying something similar to a woman you can really affect your mental health Joe, i wonder um, whether we should bring yeah bring yeah um, yeah. Um, yeah. Like great. thank you for being very patient yeah thank you for your <laughs> patience emma. um i'd like to introduce our next guest uh, dr emma black thank you for joining us emma Hi and welcome. Um, why did I say welcome? But thank you for having me on. Um, I'm a clinical psychologist, uh, also in North Queensland, and I'm really passionate about women's mental health. And so I guess in terms of my background, I started working with women, I think it was around 2005, 
in my first job when working at a centre against sexual assault. So that position was largely working with women, um, although that does happen to males. Um, by and large, it's women that get affected. And I worked there for a number of years. And what I kind of took from that is, you know, when women work together and when they support each other and support, you know, someone who is in a crisis and needs that helping hand to get through, like it's actually really powerful. And that started my passion about working with women. And from there, I then went on to do my doctoral degree. And as part of that, I ended up looking at eating disorders and self-harm in women and published a couple of articles on that topic as well. But pretty much since finishing my doctorate and then sort of starting my career more formally, I've always been really passionate about working with women. That's what matters to me. Um, and as a clinical psychologist, um, have you worked with men as well? Or have you, what are the differences in the mental health issues that, between, that men have and the, that women have? Yeah, of course. And I haven't always worked in like a women-focused role. Like I've worked in hospitals and a university and like a community mental health team. So, of course. Um, in terms of the differences, well, you've outlined that some conditions tend to be like higher in women. Um, and probably what we didn't cover there was that borderline personality also tends to be overrepresented in women. Um, and there's also a gender specific diagnosis now, and that's premenstrual dysphoria, um, which really concerns um, the symptoms that women get in the lead up and at lead up to and at the start of their menstrual cycle. In terms of the differences between uh, working with women and working with men, well, like anyone that presents with difficulties with mental health, you know, needs sort of similar supports. Probably um, my experience is that women are often more able to get in contact with and to verbalise some of their emotions. Um, so that kind of makes it a bit easier um, in some ways when you're doing like therapy type work. Um, I'm just sort of thinking about some of the other differences. Uh, I, I guess if we kind of go back to social conditioning, uh, what some of the theories like, and this is very kind of old, but some of the theories are that women tend to have more internalizing disorders. So that is like the self-criticism, anxiety, and depression, beating yourself up, having emotional difficulties. And some of that does come to the way women are like conditioned socially or the way they are raised. Um, having angry outbursts, being bossy is not really like um, socially acceptable for a young girl or a woman, whereas those sorts of behaviours are more accepted or expected in men. And so then um, males can present with more like externalising disorders, like being angry, irritable, having outbursts, physical aggression, that sort of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting what you say around the, the, the kind of different presentations. And, and in terms of the internalise, you know, the, the things that women kind of internalise, what, what kind of messages do you think lead to, you know, women, I don't know, having such negative self-talk often? 
Well, if um, someone asserts themselves as like a young girl or a young woman, um, they can get cut down pretty quickly um, through messages like, you know, you don't be so bossy, she's just a bitch, um, she's arrogant, whereas a male displaying the exact same behaviour um, can actually be rewarded for being confident. And so what women learn is like not to have those sorts of behaviours. But if people have these same feelings and you don't sort of express them because it's not socially acceptable, well, what do you do with them? And that's yeah. where it kind of can get turned on yourself more. Yeah, and I guess society that you know there's it's a still you know a real rigidity rigidity around gender roles. Men are expected to present like this. Women are expected to be, you know to present and and be like this. And that's so damaging for you know for, for both really. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like the working man and the housewife, kind of that expectation of women to be the housewife and the man to be the working one, as a kind of a ripple impact on women and how society views people. And the traditional gender roles, you know, I mean, I work a lot with couples, and you know, it, it, it's really amazing how how easily, you know, even young couples drop into traditional gender roles. You know, the pull is so powerful, isn't it, of, you know, of, 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 you know, of history. And I guess we, you know, patriarchal society, I mean, that's another kind of conversation. But, but if it's okay, Emma, I'm, I'm really interested in to segue into your work with eating disorders. And I just wonder whether you could talk a little bit more about that and also the self-harm, perhaps if you could bring that in and tell us a little bit more. Yeah, um, well, eating disorders, and both self-harm are probably great examples of like turning on yourself or that internalising type behaviour. And they actually have a really high comorbidity together, although the numbers do vary between different research studies. Um, it's even been theorised that eating disorders are just another type of self-harm. And look, when you work with people, they'll often say that sort of stuff that they want to punish themselves because they're so unhappy or have so many difficult feelings. And I guess we're really just talking about how you do punish yourself, whether you punish your body through like harming it through damaging tissue immediately, like um, cutting or burning, or whether you harm it through like compulsive exercise, not feeding yourself or binging and then purging or vomiting or whatever that purge might look like. And, and what are the pressures that, that women are under that, you know, that cause them to, you know, to, to kind of go into having eating disorders? Yeah. It's, co so it's very complex, isn't it? It is. And look, all the models are really clear that it starts with internalising this ideal that being skinny is really important. Then the next step is often dieting. And the other factor that's really involved in developing an eating disorder it's about having difficulties with your emotions. So you might have like really big feelings as a young woman and not quite know what to do with them and want to escape or avoid them. And so the irony is like, say, if you are binge eating, you don't actually have to feel anything because all you're doing is eating to the point of feeling sick and full and uncomfortable. There's not much room for anything else in that moment. So, oh yeah, so it's the thin ideal that becomes really important, dieting, difficulties with emotions. But then the irony is, is that all those things, three things become intertwined and they maintain each other. And then we're kind of linking in, yeah, I mean, it, it is really complex, isn't it? And I guess there is, you know, 
there are you know commonalities around people that you know suffer from eating disorders but of course you know their, their, their lives that you know all of our lives are so complex and you know all of these things are very very individualistic at the same time uh, does social media play a part here for, for young women do you think yeah, for sure. And there's a lot of research around that. And there's a lot of um, really unhelpful messages, but also really unhelpful forums and pages that people can follow that reinforce um, uh, eating disorders as well as self-harm. Uh, so there's kind of different ones for each. And so when you when I work with someone that presents with either of those, one thing I'm often really curious about is what's happening online because that can give you a clue as to um, how difficult um, it may be to sort of um, move some of their thinking and some of their behaviours if they're really entrenched in unhelpful online communities. I think one other thing as well, like something we touched on with, when we had our interview with Drew, our series, we were talking about all these expectations for show, what show dating shows like Love Island and bachelorette and all these other dating shows and then people are going to look at that and think oh they're getting dates because they look that way and then people are going to feel like they're expected to look a certain way yeah yeah and that's often what women report too like it's really important to be skinny in order to be valued to have worth for someone to want to have a relationship with them because um, their body image how they look becomes like their central focus so they're judging themselves really heavily on this and they assume that everybody else is as well and the one, if it's okay to move around a little bit, Emma, because I'm really interested in kind of to talk about your experience in different areas. I'm wondering whether we could talk a little bit around kind of birth trauma, PTSD that women experience. I know this is another one of your areas. And, you know, in my experience, it's an area that really does not get the attention. It's not talked about, I don't think, to any, you know, to the degree that is necessary. And I'm also kind of bringing in miscarriage. I think that's another thing that really is not talked about, but affects so many women. And, you know, it is also can fit into the PTSD diagnosis. So I'm wondering just whether you could talk a little bit more about your work in that area. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, women do get PTSD from miscarriage, whether that's early and late, um, stillbirth and birth trauma. Uh, and so I think one of the things too is like birth can be traumatic. And in Australia, we recognise that there's actually really high rates of birth trauma. It's now put at one in three women will have a traumatic birth. And having a traumatic birth is not just about like having physical injury or nearly dying it can be feeling really afraid or really um scared during your birth because you've got to remember too like women are so vulnerable and even like medically they're considered to not be able to consent when they're actually in labor so often they have very little control over the process or what's happening not always the case there are lots of great obstetricians out there and midwives of course who do great work but even in that things can go awry and so look in terms of my work you know, I've seen a lot of women that have PTSD from birth trauma and from pregnancy loss and from baby loss 
And I think the really hard thing about those areas, it's not just trauma, it's also often grief as well for, you know, the baby you've lost or the birth that you really wanted, or even those early months where you wanted to bond with your baby, but you're in kind of a fog and just surviving and may not even remember that much of it. Yeah, I mean, it, it's an enormous subject. And again, you know, one that I think really doesn't get coverage that it, you know, it deserves and, and also loss around miscarriage. You know, I mean, I just wonder whether, you know, medical professionals, you know, always react in the most positive way to women that perhaps have had miscarriage. Yeah, well, there's a lot of um, like anecdotal stories that have indicated that it's not like that. I think the really hard part too, I just sort of imagine probably for medical practitioners who see a lot of this, like that's their norm. And so it's just sort of like another day maybe for them, which I'm saying this, but I'm like, I could be completely wrong and I'll probably get in trouble for saying that, but it's something that they're used to. Whereas, you know, if this is your first pregnancy loss, like, or um, another type of loss, like this is your first experience with it. And like, it's not the same as being an outsider, I suppose. Mm. Lots of medical practitioners, midwives, and of course, um, nurses and other professionals, including doors are amazingly sensitive. And so women do have great stories there too. But like sometimes, like, yeah, things do go awry. Yeah, and, and I guess for, you know, again, this is maybe a generalisation, but I guess for a lot of women, yeah, I mean, it, it, it is, you know, it is loss of their child, but it is also loss of that future that they've imagined, that, you know, they've planned, you know, that they've thought about, that they've, you know, spent a lot of time thinking about completely understandably. You know, it, it's an enormous loss, isn't it, often? Yeah, for sure. And yeah. part of the psychology of pregnancy too is like you're not just like physically growing your baby, but they come to like they come to life in your mind and you start to imagine like what they'll be like as a person, even from early on in pregnancy, wonder about their gender, wonder about what they'll do. Like you kind of write this story, like you said, that future of not just the baby, but the family. And then people often make like big life changes too, like buying a bigger house, looking at changing jobs. And if you kind of do those things, but then you don't wind up with your baby, like that's kind of another loss as well. And, and why, I mean, this is kind of what I feel I see and you might disagree, but what, what I see is society really not talking about miscarriage. And I, I, I just wonder if you agree with that, why? why you think that might be why why are these losses unspeakable yeah well I think there's a lot of different reasons for that and I think one of the great things recently where um, celebrities have kind of shared some of their losses such as Chrissy Teigen and Meghan Markle I think that actually creates room for women to be able to talk about this in terms of the taboo, there definitely is one. Some of my thoughts around that is we do have cultural messaging. So if you think about that 12-week rule, like you don't announce your pregnancy until 12 weeks, um, in case something happens, what does that tell you? If you don't tell anyone you're pregnant until you're sure the pregnancy is continuing, it says don't tell people in case you lose your baby. And so I think that's one of the factors as well. But the other really hard thing is like when you kind of share that you have lost a baby, like people often don't respond that helpfully. They can say like really um, maybe like well-intentioned but insensitive things 
like at least you can get pregnant you can always try again like you already have a child and what that does is just dismisses your grief um, minimizes it so then people don't want to share either because you can imagine pouring your heart out and someone going oh they're there dear at least you can have children you'd be like <laughs> horrified by that and I guess it just causes women to internalize their pain doesn't it? I guess this is what happens that you know, that, yeah. you know hopefully there will be some support networks certainly you know one would hope initially but of course, you know, this loss doesn't go away after two weeks or three weeks, you know, and I think women just do end up internalising this pain and it just stays there. You know, they, they, perhaps they might see a professional, you know, years later and that can be helpful. But uh, I think, in, yeah, I mean, obviously incredibly difficult for women to have this wall of silence, you know, around this issue. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I probably should use this opportunity to throw in there some fantastic organizations that are dedicated to providing like some support and help to women so the pink elephants network is one and sands is another one and this is all about pregnancy and baby loss did you want to come in joe yeah i just wanted to ask maybe if we could chat a little bit about postnatal depression as well yeah yeah is there anything yeah? Just in general, like some of the impacts that postnatal depression could have on the person and sort of the things that can cause it. Yeah. Yeah. So the risk can be higher if you have like a history of depression or anxiety. Um, there's also evidence that diet during pregnancy um, can have an impact because like pregnancy depletes your body so physically. If you sort of go into birth and breastfeeding if you're doing that or having your baby like depleted physiologically that um, is not necessarily a great start to feeling good um, some of the other things that can be risk factors include uh, smoking um, having a traumatic birth having a difficult pregnancy so if you have a lot of stress during pregnancy or pregnancy complications um, there's lots of them including like hyperemesis um, preeclampsia that sort of stuff this can also increase your risk the other big thing I should probably say is uh, whether it was an intended pregnancy whether it's a wanted pregnancy can also play a role in the risk as well and in terms of the impacts well, like with sort of any condition, it can range from mild to like more severely impairing. One thing that does happen is because mums often feel like really flat or really low, it's kind of, it is hard to have happy feelings. So that can interfere with bonding with baby. Um, and so like a lot of um, bonding with baby is actually like, and what they kind of learn in their development is through faces. So if you know baby's looking at you, often mums will like sort of engage and smile back. But if you're depressed, depleted, have no energy, and you're just surviving, it's kind of very hard to engage on that sort of face-to-face -face basis. So I guess the impacts are kind of broader than just mum it also affects the relationship because the bond can be kind of pushed back and can also um, affect like baby's sort of um, initial uh, I guess internalizing of what um, I guess feelings or uh, understanding of feelings I should say which I'm not saying that to like make anyone feel guilty or anything like that because that all that work can come later um, and so I realised that that may have come off poorly. I guess I was trying to say the impact is 
for the family and also the relationship with the partner as well as with baby. So it's really important to support mums um, and the dyad as well as the family uh, because the impacts can be quite broad. But not everything is reversible as well. Yeah. And I guess that just to pick up on, on the guilt, you know, I'm just kind of broadening that out to, you know, women's mental health generally, you know, and I guess if someone... You know, if, if a woman has postnatal depression, you know, so she'll be dealing with the depressive feelings and, you know, trying to cope and trying to, you know, trying to you know, be a mother to, to their baby. But then there's also probably a lot of guilt that comes in around, I should be, I should be doing this, I should be doing that. You know, there's a lot of societal pressure as well, isn't there, over what, you know, it's just another area really where women have to be perfect, isn't it? Society says you should be this perfect mum and you're, you're experiencing depression, so you're just feeling really bad. Yeah, and also one of the symptoms of depression is like excessive guilt. Like people don't want to feel depressed and they often, like they do genuinely want different starts to motherhood. And so you just sort of get stuck in this vicious loop of feeling awful, wanting to do different, but also not having like the energy or um, the resources to be able to do different. Just wonder, Joe, whether you wanted to come in and just talk talk to you know anything that kind of covered quite a few areas with them, or whether there's anything you'd like to come in on. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I yeah. think. Yeah. Sorry. Oh, sorry, sorry, the wrong Joe. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you sorry. Go, you go. You go. Sorry, I'm confused. Go you go. I think. Did you mean another Joe? Uh, I, I, yeah, I, I didn't mean <laughs> you, Joe. Sorry, I've got no, too many Joes. Go you go ahead. There's too many, there's too many Joes. Joe, I'll let you speak. Sorry, sorry, I will, I'll, I'll re-mute myself. Um, I just wanted to know if there's any other, like, what other sort of mental health disorders that women can um, suffer from or have or be, yeah, be diagnosed with. For me, is this for yeah. me? Yeah. yeah. Sorry, I got distracted by the Joe and Joe. No, it was um, yeah, so another thing that is um, quite, um, I guess, overrepresented in women is borderline personality. Um, and that's really kind of having um, difficulties regulating like your emotional state, your thoughts, your behaviour. Uh, and probably the other one which I touched on earlier is premenstrual dysphoria. And that's really like having such acute and severe symptoms in the lead up to your period. Uh, and then them sort of, they typically resolve within a few days afterwards. But people actually become like find it very difficult to function at work, in their relationships. They can have like acute anxiety, acute depression, acute anger, as well as a lot of physical symptoms as well, um, such as intense bloating, um, sore breasts, that sort of stuff. Uh, so they're probably the only other two that I would add into um, the discussion so far about anxiety, depression, eating disorders and PTSD. Mm -hmm. um, Joe, was there anything you'd like to add? Sorry, I, I, I put myself on mute there so I wouldn't distract. No, I was just I was just thinking um, across Emma and I that you know the topics that we cover between us it, it really shows um, how many challenges are there for women and I just I just think it's 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 wonderful to be having these these conversations and, and bringing some of these things to the fore and and really encouraging women to to care for their mental well being and their mental health and and to know that there's just lots of options out there to support women and, and to support women in your lives. So um, I, I guess I'm just really grateful for the conversation.
Thank you for joining us. Um, um, how, if anyone wanted to get into contact with you or find any of your social media pages, where, we, where could our listeners find you? Yeah, thank you. Um, well, in terms of my clinical work, um, I'm not able to take on any more clients. I've been very full for a very long time. Um, but I do offer some online courses to help uh, particularly mums as they transition to being mothers. So that could be found at transitioningtomotherhood.com, like all one word. My website is townsvillepsychologist.com.au. Um, and so there's kind of links there to like social media, to the online courses, that sort of stuff. Also information about women's health, women's mental health and well-being too. Thank you. Um, one thing we ask all our guests when we start doing this since the start of season two, um, what piece of advice would you give to women with mental health? Um, you, either one of you can go first. Um, okay, I'll, I'll jump in. Uh, I guess the big thing is that you don't have to go it alone. Often women try to be strong and independent and don't like always want to ask for help. And so this is one of those times where actually getting help and as early as possible can really reduce like your suffering or how long you have to sit with these kind of difficulties for. And Joe really did touch on it earlier too. Like you can always start with your GP and they can kind of open up um, pathways for other supports there. Um, but basically, like if you're having a hard time, um, don't just like hope it'll get better. Doing something about it often like makes all the difference. Yeah, and if I can reaffirm exactly what Emma said there. I mean, it, it is so important to know that, you know, people in our lives matter and, and that you don't need to be alone with it. And so all, all I would add to what Emma said, because she's articulated that so beautifully is, and in addition to that, to be kind to yourself that, you know, the world's tough enough out there and there's enough going on wherever you can to be gentle with yourself and to be kind to yourself, I think, is the other thing to do through that journey and to understand that, you know what you're going through there'll be many other people going through similar which doesn't diminish from your experience but what it tells you is that that what's happening to you is important and it's and it's absolutely worth going out and getting some support and 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 helping you thank you um, is there anything you'd like to add mark before we wrap up uh, no i'd just like to really thank both i guess for coming on this is a you know enormous subject and you know, i guess i'm left wanting there's more things i'm wanting to ask yeah. you both but i just we'll really appreciate you both coming on <laughs> yeah it's been really good yeah it's, it's been good to do a different side because we've done men and mental health twice now so it's good to do a different side to yeah, have women in mental health um i'd like to say thank you to both of our guests for joining us we really appreciate you coming on and hopefully this episode's very episode's very beneficial to any women out there that might be struggling. Might encourage them to speak up or um, help someone else that might be struggling. Um, and I want to say thank you to Mark for help, helping co-host us again. Um, and thank you to our listeners. Thank you, everyone. Okay, good thank to meet you. you both. Thank you. Thank you. If you or anyone you know has been affected by the topics discussed in today's episode or previous episodes, please contact your local or country's helpline. You'll find them by going to Google and typing in helpline. Um, they have Samaritan's suicide helpline, but 
remember that you're not alone as the title of the podcast says and there are many other people like you that have got mental health issues and feel suicidal and feel alone but there's always someone there for you to talk to be it a friend a family member a stranger a psychotherapist or doctor there's someone to talk to i've been in that position before and talking to someone really does help it's okay to not be okay and i will see you in the next episode